I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. guest is Anjali Shireen. She's an award-winning licensed marriage and family therapist specializing in somatic therapy, trauma healing, resilience building, and cultivating joy. She spent 15 years in practice working specifically with immigrant, South Asian, Middle Eastern, Muslim, and LGBTQ people. And she's the author of a fabulous new book that we'll be talking about, Joyous Resilience, a path to individual healing and collective thriving in an inequitable world, which addresses personal healing and intersectional oppression and trauma and takes us on a guided journey from the cycle of suffering to the circle of resilience in our own lives and then how to extend that out into the world in personally meaningful and compassionate action. So, to begin with, Anjali, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you, Tonio. And I must say thank you for that wonderful introduction. Um, I especially loved your description of the book. So I'm going to take from that, I think, going forward. You begin the book with a roomy quote saying, Seek not for love, but merely seek all the barriers to it within yourself that you've built against love. So could you talk about that and some of those barriers 
and the cycle of suffering we learn in our culture, and also how you became inspired to do this work of transforming the cycle of suffering into the circle of resilience, and then eventually coming to write this really amazingly wonderful book. Thank you. Yes, and I love that you picked up on that quote. I'm going to start at the end of the questions you shared. So for me, as I share in the book, you know, the journey began when I was 22 years old and I had just entered therapy and I was introduced to a tool called the Victim Triangle, which is the basis for the cycle of suffering. And I would say in some ways, like the Rumi quote, the cycle of suffering, the Victim Triangle is the essence of what blocks us from love. And so what that is, is these three roles within us. And so anytime we might be feeling stuck or scared or sad or angry, you know, something has happened in life that's bringing up emotion. There are a couple of ways that we might end up responding to ourselves, generally based on how we were taught to respond to um, difficult emotions by parents or major figures in our lives. And so these two ways are either we can become incredibly critical of ourselves, you know, saying, why are you feeling this way? You shouldn't feel this way. What's wrong with you? Scaring ourselves, which is also a form of criticism, you know, saying this will go on forever. Um, You'll never get out of this. So either we do that to ourselves, which takes that emotion and obviously ratchets it up even further, produces even more distress, or The secondary role that we have is what I call the neglector, which really is a way that we might self-neglect. So we might respond to that emotion by pretending it isn't happening, distracting ourselves, thinking that we should focus on other people or other things, mostly because it's so hard to bring attention to where there's pain or suffering inside. When we respond to ourselves in these ways by either criticizing or self-neglecting, as you can imagine, you know, the pain doesn't go away. The fear or the original anger or disappointment doesn't go away. In fact, all that happens is that it might temporarily get shut down until the next time that the same thing happens and the pain is there. And so to me, that is the way in which love, quote unquote, gets blocked. One, because our own love to ourselves is not being allowed to flow freely. We're not responding in that empathic manner to our own pain. And also, Because we're not responded to with care, that part inside of us that got scared or disappointed or angry also shuts it down. And so in that way, our love or our aliveness, our life source is no longer able to flow freely. It's no longer able to actually untangle from what's occurring and move forward. It just stays stuck. So at 22, when I discovered this model in a way, and I started to look at every interaction that was happening every interaction that I was having and every place that I was in pain and how these internal responses were perpetuating that, it was the biggest light bulb. And that was the beginning of a tool that I used, not only for myself, you know, I would say almost every single day since then, but also as I became a clinician, moving into using that tool with my clients And then moving it forward into now I know why I'm stuck in suffering. Now I know why the block to love. But then the question is, what is the way out? And through the past 15, 16 years of doing this work with clients and on myself, that question 
turned into what I call the circle of resilience, which is the antidote to these three roles I described, this stuckness, were the counter roles that we have to grow inside of ourselves, in a way, the healthier parent figures internally. And those became, instead of neglecting ourselves, it is a shift into a profound nurturing of oneself and an attunement to that pain. And instead of criticizing, it is becoming the protector of ourselves, someone who has boundaries on that inner critic and who's actually invested in safety and dignity for our emotional self. The other two places that I kind of discovered would help us rise in resilience were also the soul self, so a connection with something larger or beyond ourselves that we could turn to when we are in pain. And so that same vulnerability that same anger and distress and pain when responded now to with nurturance and when responded to with protection and when responded to by the soul self, like any child in a way, instead of falling into further distress or vulnerability, actually begins to rise in resilience. And you start to feel like, oh, I can actually feel this feeling that is hard with the help of these three figures. And I can actually unpack it. And I do start to feel better about myself. And I do start to feel like I can get up and try again, which, you know, in many ways, that's the simplest way of describing resilience is being able to get back up. But get back up from a place of love, feeling profoundly loved, actually getting back up stronger because you feel the permission to fall down. And you know that when you fall down, there will be care. So that's the beginning of the journey towards the book. And obviously, over the past 15 years, Doing this work with clients, I really started to feel how well this model works, how universal it is, no matter which culture I was working with, no matter which gender, no matter which situation. You put where you're stuck into these models of suffering or resilience, and you know it seems to be universal so far. And then I really, really wanted to have a simple way to be able to offer it to people so that they could also just benefit from having this at hand to wake up to why there is pain and a blockage around love and a simple path out of it. Whether you're a healer or a clinician who's wanting to work clients through a foundation of resilience or you're someone who's on your journey of transformation and you're wondering what are kind of the base ways to move forward. So that's that's where all this came from. Well, I have to say that what really mm -hmm. struck me with this model was it's utter simplicity. Mm -hmm. I've been doing this kind of work on myself for over 40 years mm -hmm. and getting into it, it was much more complex and I was too messed up mm -hmm. to be able to easily untangle myself. And mm -hmm. I've come across lots of different models that more or less talk about the same thing, but this model was so simple and yet mm -hmm. so comprehensive. And that was one of the reasons why I just felt like this book, and also the way you articulate it, that was very important for me as well. And that's one of the reasons why I love this book so much, to the point where a number of times while reading it, I was thinking to myself, this is the best book I've ever read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> it's a wonderful thing to hear. I especially, though, love you saying that it's simple, and like what you mean that like, Though it is simple, I think its power is that, as I said, like any life situation, if you break it down, can actually be put into these roles and can be understood. And I think the most murkiest of situations, when you break them down through these roles, start to actually untangle. So, yeah, I mean, I, I like I said, I felt the same way 
you know, and also starting very young. That was my first experience in therapy. And there was a lot to untangle at that point. But this just gave me like a very clear path, a very clear beacon to follow and a way to actually be less overwhelmed by what was happening. Because to your point, there's so much oftentimes, right? There's so many layers that we have to kind of sift through. And I think therapy or transformation or just our own emotional life can feel so incredibly overwhelming and you don't know where to start. And I did love how this just broke it down into these three voices or these four voices and identifying, you know, what was I saying to myself that fell into the mouths of these characters? And once I could do that, I was on my way to walking myself out of it. Yes. So let's dive into it. So we begin Mm -hmm. as a child, which in the cycle of suffering, that's represented by the vulnerable self. And in Mm -hmm. our culture, we learn to criticize and neglect Mm -hmm. ourselves. And both of those are done ironically or paradoxically in the service of taking care of us and protecting us and nurturing us. Mm -hmm. Yes, Yes, absolutely. You know, I've heard kind of the same thing from clients just across cultures and, of course, myself growing up in Pakistan, you know, being here in America. So, yes, like it seems like this idea of if I criticize you, that's the way that I'm going to motivate you. And that's, I would actually say, probably the most benign level. You know, sometimes these voices are coming because of histories of actual like physical abuse or the critique has hit the level of emotional abuse. But all of that is in the name of children learn by being yelled at or being put down or we don't want them to be spoiled, quote unquote, if we praise them or if we celebrate them. So a lot of that can obviously translate then into we don't learn how to speak to ourselves in a kind manner or even recognize that the way that we're speaking to ourselves is actually crossing a line and that it's not motivation, it is toxic critique. And then on the other side with the neglect, again, many times, you know, children, like obviously we had, I guess in the 50s and the 60s, the idea of like, you don't pick up your child if they're crying. We don't wanna spoil them, let them cry it out, that, that whole model, you know, or the idea, I think, especially for boys that, tending to emotions or having emotions, you know, is somehow weak. All of that is training in self-neglect in terms of you're not allowed to have access to your emotional self. You're not allowed to actually have care towards that part. You're supposed to have that stiff upper lip or, you know, basically clamp down on the emotions and act as if nothing is wrong. And then I think for women, and definitely depending upon different cultures, like for example, South Asian cultures that I belong to, But probably more universally as well, the idea that women still are supposed to be caretakers and that the value for women is intending to others and not themselves. And in some ways, like the value of the valuing of or the teaching of martyrdom as the way that you get attention and celebration is if you are giving of yourself to others and and overtly even showing that you're not tending to yourself and that you're suffering. I think especially for moms and the guilt that mothers feel you know, if they are exhausted and overrun and need something for themselves, but the focus has to be on the child, as if that was the only place that needed attention. So all of these ways uh, translate into then learning, I do need to either motivate myself through critique or speak to myself in ways that are put downs when I'm feeling vulnerable. On the other side, I have to neglect myself and focus on others, or I don't actually know how to be with myself when I have these emotions come up. And yes, all of that is in the guise of this is how we're supposed to care for ourselves when we are stuck. 
And then that leads to, you know, obviously that might work for a while. Like we can suppress those emotions. We can keep going forward. But eventually that is the root then of like anxiety and depression and low self-esteem and chronic dis-ease going forward. And children can't help but absorb this and learn this kind of modeling, this suffering or this cycle of suffering model. They pick it up from their mothers and their fathers and from the culture around them because everybody has been unconsciously indoctrinated into this way of being. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, children pick it up from their parents, children pick it up from school systems, um, children pick it up from peers who are also immersed in similar patterns. One of the things that the original model of a victim triangle found was that these are universal, these ways of interacting. You can find them in every household in a way. These are these ways that people have learned how to caretake themselves or have their needs met. And children are mimics. What I also want to say, though, is that the way it shows up, the examples I gave were one form that it can take, which is parent does this to child and then child wholesale swallows this way of tending to themselves and reenacts it. It can show up in different ways, though. It can show up as in one child might take this form of being caretaked and absorb it and reenact it. Another child might take that in, but decide that they actually want to push back against it. And so, you know, if my parent has been criticizing me, I might begin to think I have to be perfect all the time. And so the form of criticism may not look like that harshness that was coming from the parent, but it can look like what I call like a sneakier version, a version that I think society actually, again, endorses a lot more, you know, which is, am I doing it perfectly? Is it the best? And all of that actually is still feeling the same anxiety that the critical parent gave. So one can push back against something, one can absorb it wholesale. And then, you know, here's also the good news, both for the new model, the cycle of resilience, but also just for anybody growing up, which is that we've also found that sometimes it can only take like one different voice, a kind teacher or a loving grandparent, someone who actually responds to the child differently. And that voice not critiquing things, but actually affirming things or tending to the emotions instead of shaming around the emotions. That means that the child can actually absorb a different message. And at that point, they might hold both in their body. So sometimes they might be kind and sometimes they might find themselves being harsh, or they might actually just take in that positive message and go forward, having relinquished the critical or neglectful message. So it can go many different ways, but certainly we are shaped by these interactions And one way or the other, they do inform how we continue to act within ourselves and in our relationships. Does that make sense? Absolutely. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) And for those who don't absorb a positive way of being in the world as a child, they absorb this pattern that fits into the cycle of suffering. And it's a form of traumatization. And Mm -hmm. as you said, it gets passed on usually Mm -hmm. unconsciously, and it becomes a source of intergenerational trauma. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it expands out throughout the society into these systemic patterns of the way we treat people. We do it with our children, we do it with women, and we do it with people who are unlike us. You know, we're usually Mm -hmm. unconscious about our past, our emotional Mm -hmm. and psychological influences and upbringing. 
And we're all stuck in that cycle of suffering. And even those of us who've been doing a lot of work on ourselves, we still have the voice, you know, the critic and the neglector or any other way anybody might have of characterizing these negative voices Mm-hmm. that we have inside of us, they pop up fairly regularly. And I would love for you to talk about how we transform that cycle of suffering, how we we shift out of being hijacked and dominated by those mm-hmm. negative voices, those negative characters that we've learned. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to what you shared. I think maybe the first place I would start is because we haven't actually said this so far like it can often seem like in describing the cycle of suffering and the circle of resilience you know that there's the bad guys and the good guys and the the critic and the neglector are obviously the bad guys and I think it can be very easy then actually for the critic to kind of criticize the critic um, and start to say you know what's wrong with us that we respond this way and you know, like what's wrong with us that we respond this way and I feel so shamed and bad that I respond this way or, you know, I've done so much work over all these years and still it's happening. And I think one of the first places to shift that, which is once again actually bringing in that nurturing voice and the protector to some degree, is to understand that these ways of responding, like when we feel vulnerable, basically, whenever we're having some kind of emotion that's tender in a way, and tender doesn't have to mean like sad only, it can feel very tender to be hurt and actually to be angry. But when we're having some kind of emotional response and we learned to then harden in the face of it and start to say what's wrong with me and that's bad or um, dissociate in the face of it and start to check out or turn to addictions or turn to caretaking, that those were hands down usually ways that you know, was our best thinking or the best means available at a certain point to care for that vulnerability. Because if it is too dangerous to feel because I will be shamed and scolded, or if it's too dangerous to feel because the feeling is so big and I am overwhelmed by it and I don't actually have the resources when it comes to community or family to hold it with me, then it makes sense why I might have wanted to check out, right? So one of the ways out, I think, is just soften around all of this and just to understand that these are our survival strategies. These are our kind of best thinking in the worst situations at that time and to honor them as such. So we're not here to judge our defenses, but we are here to kind of soften and understand them. And that in the end, actually, the part of us that criticizes and the part of us that checks out is as vulnerable as the parts of us that is vulnerable. So all of that needs to soften. And I'm going to tie in for a second intergenerational trauma as well and historical trauma, since you were mentioning those, you know, that obviously these things that are passed down, um, it is also because intergenerationally, these were the best ways that our parents or grandparents knew how to survive. And in terms of historical trauma, like large scale war, oppression, slavery, genocide, systemic racism, these ways of interacting came out of how to survive those large-scale events. And again, these ways in the end may not be serving us, but we really want to have, I think, a lot of respect in some ways for the suffering that produced these ways of coping, even as we then begin to look at this together and go, it's not serving us anymore. It actually is leading us down the path of more trauma and more suffering. And so what needs to change? 
So that's just the first piece that I wanted to say is shifting our perspective around this into more nurturance and respect as a survival strategy. And then shifting over into, you know, what next? You talked a little bit about being hijacked, and I think that that's right. Like, these are reflex responses at some point. We don't even know that we're doing them. It just becomes, that's just the way it is. And so it's just the way it is that life is stressful, and I am very irritable when life is stressful. And when I'm irritable, I might lash out at my loved ones, or I might, you know, indulge in a lot of whether it's binge scrolling on social media or binge eating or all of these behaviors to kind of help me check out. And then it's just life that I might be feeling overall. I may not even call it depressed or anxious. It might just be, I'm just living to day to day and I just call it stress. So some of it is, I think, like waking up to that this way is actually suffering and that it may be the way that has happened, but it's not necessarily what has to happen going forward, that there is a way out. So that's the next piece in terms of waking up to it, basically. And as you said, like the book breaks it down so simply that like once you know the roles, and as I often say, like they're not actually very creative, like the things that these roles say and do can often fall into very kind of conventional tropes in a way, you know, what's wrong with me, or I'm fine, let me focus on you. And once you begin to recognize that for yourselves, it is harder to get hijacked. The next piece, which is the crux of the book, as you saw, is actually learning how to build and connect with a different response inside. And so a lot of the book will walk us through what does it mean? Like, what are the traits of nurturance as opposed to neglect? So I talk about like attunement, empathy, actually understanding that emotions are valid and knowing what to do and how to move emotions through our body. Same with protection, actually recognizing what is critique and learning how to say no and set boundaries and clearly communicate those needs within ourselves and also outside of ourselves. So as we learn these skills, also things like accessing creativity and awe and pleasure as a way to boost ourselves up, we're in the cycle of suffering, generally our worlds again get narrow and we're not turning to things that actually boost our resilience. We're turning usually to things that anesthetize our resilience. So the examples that I gave about TV, which is a common entertainment or relaxation device in Western culture, you know, and to a point, of course, enjoyable, but past a certain point is actually just used as a way to anesthetize those feelings, that stuff of stress, so that the next day when we wake up and we go to work, we're not necessarily rejuvenated. The TV has not taken away the stress. It's just simply covered it over. And now we're back again at work, a little bit more tired, a little bit more disconnected, a little bit more dejected. So turning to things like creativity, awe, pleasure, play through the soul self and the resilient self, learning how to access that as a way to lift ourselves up, learning how to access connections and healthy relationships to lift ourselves up. That is where we have to go to have that foundation to come out of the cycle and this old way of responding to difficult emotions. As you say, compassion for our critic and neglector and the negative things that arise in us are the beginning, are an essential beginning. And this whole compassion thing, another thing that I connected with in the book, you mentioned learning Tonglen from reading mm-hmm. Pema Chodron. And mm-hmm. about 15 years ago, I feel like Pema Chodron kind of saved my life Mm -hmm. after an extremely painful ending of a relationship. And Mm -hmm. reading her book, When Things Fall Apart, that book was just so profoundly 
amazing and life-saving for me. Also, mm-hmm. her book, The Places That Scare Us, was mm-hmm. also very powerful. So mm-hmm. this notion of compassion that you talk about is, is such an important beginning place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I think, the container in which it finally feels safe to open to almost anything, right? Anything that scares us, anything, like you said, that's fallen apart. And I think also um, anything that we're ashamed of. Because some of the defensiveness is a response to like, don't get close to this because I am scared of it. Even if we don't call it, I'm scared of it. Underneath all the posturing and the defensiveness is generally, I am either scared or I am hurt or both. That's usually what's underneath anger. And so I think compassion, that energy that goes, we can be with this and your essence is not in judgment, right? Like who you are is not in judgment. And so we can be with some ways that you may have been that you feel ashamed about or where you have learning to do or where you have growth to do. But it's just so much safer to do that. Or we can be with your grief here or the places that you feel lost because what we're bringing to you is that essential, I remember your humanity. I remember that like I and you are the same and that there is love here for you. So I think that is the container in which we feel safe enough to do the work necessary to transform parts that are hurting. And I would say probably societally as well as individually. I just wanted to say that when you were talking about Pema. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's so critical in all of this because that vulnerable self that we all have and we all Mm -hmm. experience continually, Mm -hmm. stress Mm -hmm. just triggers and brings us back to that vulnerable place. Mm -hmm. And that vulnerable self, as you write about in the book, is like being a child. It's, It's a place where we still feel the same level of vulnerability that we felt as a child. So when we're experiencing that, we might as well consider ourselves to be a child and we need the kind of care, nurturance, and protection that a child needs. Yes, and then by getting that care internally is what allows us to get into our adulthood, right? But yes, I mean, I think the reason why I kind of call the vulnerable self like a childlike self, to your point, is I think one, people soften generally more. Their response generally can be kinder towards the emotions of a child and a grown-up. And I think, again, because we've been taught that you know we're not allowed to have feelings or we're not supposed to show those feelings or feel them so much when we're adult. But the truth is, like you said, internally, we all have these emotional selves. You can call it an emotional self or a vulnerable self or a childlike self. And it's really just the place that we go to under stress, under duress. And I wouldn't say even just that. I think we also can go to it under the best of times. I mean, you mentioned you retained a connection to your childlike self. And I was curious, like, did that also translate then into, you know, some of the positive childlike traits like access to play or wonder in simple things, you know, like being able to have a sense of humor, like, so access to that place inside and allowance of that place, you know, is actually what keeps us feeling alive, which in my book, as I talk about, joy is akin to aliveness. So we all have this inside of us, our emotional selves. They last with us throughout of our lives. And allowance of them and learning to be with them is part of being alive and actually feeling joyous. Because we're getting to have all of our feelings and we know how to be with those feelings. And it's not about shutting them down. It's actually just about tending to them, the positive ones and the difficult ones. 
Yes, and there's this interesting kind of dynamic where while we're trapped in in the cycle of suffering kind of responses and dynamics, we're pretty much blocking out our ability or the doorway mm. to experience joy and that and mm-hmm. the positive side of childlikeness that mm-hmm. you were talking about. Yeah, I love children. I love watching them. I love playing with them. Mm-hmm. And I love listening to them, what they have to say, because they're so much more direct in terms of mm-hmm. talking about what's real for them. Whereas mm-hmm. I find that most adults are kind of lost in very mundane concerns, which mm-hmm. I generally don't find of much interest and certainly mm-hmm. lacks any sense of importance or essential reality. When I hear that, I imagine what you mean is, is what it makes me think of just like presence, right? That like to be a child and be at ease, like you are, you are here and you're now and it's very immediate and that can really grab the attention. I think, you know, whether it's one-on-one or in a group, the one who is most present, the one who's most engaged in the moment is where the eye goes, where the heart goes. And yeah, I mean, I think the cycle of suffering, like we described, I mean, that thing, those voices talking to us inside of ourselves, you know, can go on all the time. In fact, I think when people first learn the model, it can be startling and again, also useful to start to realize how much of the chatter inside is actually critique, anxiety, distraction, critique, anxiety, distraction, you know, away from it. And Probably one of the biggest gifts, I think, of the model and of doing the work of the nurturer and the protector and all of that, and this is why I say that it's the foundation of joyous resilience, is the eventual quieting down of all of it, which then allows for actually being present in the way that you described. And it's very, very hard to be present. And this is true of children and adults, I think, when we are deeply anxious, you know, when there's so much preoccupying us and there isn't that inner voice soothing and caring for, or there isn't that inner permission and skill set to go, if I don't like something, I'm going to be able to say no. Or if I do like something, I am allowed to say yes, you know, which is the purview of the protector. So there's so much inner anxiety because we haven't grown. Those, those same children that we were did not grow up to be adults who knew they were free to move about and do what they needed to do and that they were safe to do that. And they were able to actually regulate themselves. So all of that translates into then uh, profound distress in the moment, which looks like, you know, it's just a stressful day or aren't we all stressed and busy and hurried? It's become the norm. But I think it's actually the normalizing of a profound dis-ease. Yes, yes. And presence is is actually so simple, but when you have all these stressful narratives going on constantly, you never get there. You never sink down to that level, and mm-hmm. it seems impossible to get there. I know mm-hmm. from my experience, I learned practices to get there very early, but because I was so overwhelmed with my own inner critic and inner neglector, even when I was learning practices of compassion and the need for compassion, initially, I think I just beat myself up even more and neglected Mm, myself even more initially, Mm. you know, in that knee-jerk response against those aspects of myself that I was becoming aware of. And then after many years, presence became a natural state once all that negative 
chatter, mm-hmm. all that knee-jerk chatter just mm-hmm. kind of churned itself out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that's why pretty early on in the book we talk about, or even on the back cover, right, the premise of the book was, why is it not enough in some ways? Like, you know, we all know that we should exercise or meditate and, you know, we have so many tools in a way to supposedly access this joy or resilience. And yet, to your point, like oftentimes they can sometimes actually feel like more of a chore or like take us further away from that piece or just one more place where we can, again, criticize ourselves or find that we're falling short or all of that. And yeah, that's exactly it, that unless we change the fundamental way that we are approaching ourselves, none of those tools will actually completely help relieve us internally of that real stress, which the real stress that we're carrying, at least in this model, is that unresolved pain, that unresolved angst, that desire to be met differently in nurturance, in dignity, in connection versus met with this constant kind of like break in safety and break in connection to ourselves. Also, I've been thinking about as we're talking, you know, we're talking so much about the individual and kind of family history and going back to intergenerational trauma and historical trauma. I think just something about, you know, part of that compassionate voice coming to ourselves. I mean, if I just think about last year, you know, which the whole world has kind of lived through with COVID and then here in America. And, you know, when we talk about stress, I think so much of the stress for a lot of people is compounded by or is, you know, kind of created by huge external stressors. So COVID, the pandemic, unemployment, systemic racism, police brutality, climate change. I mean, you name it, right? Like there are these large systemic stressors. And again, depending upon which intersections you belong to, like race or class or gender or sexuality, you being at the impact of that, at the mercy of that, at the brunt of that is just higher. And I think part of what I do want to be clear with that, those voices inside is that the model, what was also different about the Joyous Resilience book and was very important for me to share and this model is that if those voices are in there, there are very real stressors outside that are then compounding that stress. And I think when it comes to intergenerational trauma, you know, working through historical trauma, which really a lot of it is not historical trauma, like when it comes to slavery, you know, systemic racism, like it's an ongoing chronic trauma, is for practitioners and the medical system and the educational system and everyday people learning and actually acknowledging that, like for society to become the voice of the nurturer versus the neglector. Because the neglector in society has often said to folks suffering from the trauma of systemic oppression, you know, why aren't you more resilient? You know, like it's your own fault if you are feeling the way that you're feeling or why can't you just get over it? Or, you know, racism is a thing of the past, kind of like in the post-Obama era. That was the story. Denying of like microaggressions, denying of the real impact of systemic oppression on black bodies and native bodies and bodies of color, trans bodies. So I think I mentioned that to say like, it is not enough to have models of healing that simply look to our childhood history or family history. Like in the cases of systemic oppression, historical and generational trauma, we have to name that there's very real external things where society was the critic or the abuser and society was a profound neglector and so the vulnerable self which is all these communities who are impacted are protesting in a way 
And by protesting, I mean like even just the internal vulnerability, the health disparities, the pain and the suffering as a response to that profound abuse and neglect. And so society has to shift into a nurturance and attunement and empathy and a reckoning with the abuse that happened and the real protection and reparations that would have to occur for us as a society to become more resilient. So when it comes to those things, you know, the response is not that people are individually responsible for their resilience. The resilience is an individual path because for vast swaths of people, like things have to change systemically. Like we need to have a healthcare system that everybody can access. We need to have access to some kind of universal income and wages that are actually livable. You know, we need to have profound reparations and education around racism and the history of oppression in this country. Like all of that reckoning has to occur for true resilience as a community to happen. So I just wanted to make sure that we included that. So I think obviously a lot of that gets left out in conversations about resilience or mental health. I'm so glad you... Does all that make sense? Absolutely. In fact, that was another part of the book that I found so amazingly wonderful, that you were connecting the two. And to me, that's that's what I've been looking for. Mm. And having people engaging outwardly in the world with that level of understanding who have done the inner work and have developed the wisdom to translate it into the outer world. And I love all of that. It just made it absolutely clear that the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. are societal movements of the nurturer and the protector mm-hmm. stepping up and asserting itself into our community, you know, collectively, mm-hmm. activism as nurturance and protection, not just activism as as a kind of a dirty word that, you know, many people who are highly privileged and, you know, don't really have any complaints about the world they live in mm-hmm. as it is. Mm-hmm. They see all this activism as being threatening to their sense mm-hmm. of security and well-being because they have everything they need and want. And a lot of people in those positions have a very hard time even imagining that anybody else could be having a different kind of an experience in their own mm-hmm. life. And as you said, if they are, it's their own fault. Mm-hmm. You know, they should either, mm-hmm. you know, pull themselves up by their own bootstraps or they okay. should or they should just get over all the past injustices. And most people don't realize the intergenerational effect of trauma on people mm-hmm. and how debilitating mm-hmm. it can be down the line to children and people who may not even have the physical trappings of those oppressions and traumas, and yet they have that trauma deep in their bones. Yes, absolutely. And like I said, I think one of the things to remember is that like that myth of the conditions are not necessarily the same. Because like I said, I mean, even in the past year and watching the profound divide in this country and watching the rise in, in many ways of you know fascism in this country and the reality of the country being based on systems that are racist and oppressive, that like, this idea of like it is not ongoing, that is probably one of the ones that also needs to be busted. Right. That like to your point, if you belong to an intersection, so if you are 
white and male and straight or even female and white and straight or you know, like any intersection where you have a privilege that means that yes in your world maybe you don't feel impinged upon the idea that that is true for everybody right? instead of being able to see that actually it is not and that there are vast vats of people where those very systems are working systematically and have been across generations to create profound disparities and that there is no way out except to actually confront that and shift that that is the big I hope and I believe the opportunity of this time to start looking there, no matter which intersection you belong to. Yes. I don't know how to get people to do that who have this kind of magical ability to look straight mm -hmm. at the world and be utterly blind to so much of it. Yeah, I think about, I think about you know, kind of like from like where I sit. So I know from my realm of therapy, and probably like that's the place where I can speak maybe with the most experience from. I guess what I'd say to you is I think of this sometimes as like a very large scale family therapy, you know, like where a profound, egregious violence has occurred. And that, that violence has occurred and that violence is kind of ongoing. It's maybe shifted shapes and members of the family who were either the perpetrators or the children of the perpetrators kind of want to move on, you know, act like, well, it happened in the past and it's over and let's not look there. And then there are the survivors or the continued victims and like they are wanting that pain to be looked at and to be addressed. And I think from the vantage point of therapy, we would go, if someone does not want to look at all, I don't know if as a therapist I would be putting my attention there. I would be looking for whoever in the room does have an opening. And I would be putting a lot of my energy and focus there. And a lot of my energy and focus into, so kind of branching back out, I think into the movements that are very actively doing the work to shift inequities. And so if I was someone wanting to kind of enter there, and looking at the state of our world and going, what can I do? And look at all the people and they don't want to do anything. I think I might actually put my attention and focus my money, my energy, my time a little bit more on the movements and communities and people who are wanting to engage and letting that start to leverage change. So I think it can be so overwhelming sometimes to think about how to shift all of these larger systems. And I think that where I think people can shut down is trying to go towards where there's the biggest no, instead of moving towards where there's even a small or large yes, and following that. I'm so glad you spelled that out so clearly. <laughs> yeah. It's so important, because I find that I practice that intuitively mm. at this point in my life. Banging my head against the wall has long since lost mm. its appeal. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So moving on from there, perhaps, mm -hmm. towards bringing joy into our lives and eventually bringing joy into our activism, you know, individually and collectively, I would love for you to talk about how you were inspired to seek more joy in your life and the experience you had in Bali. Mm. Yeah, thank you for asking that. So I think, you know, going back to, first of all, why joy? So if you go back to me being 22 and I discover this model 
And then I would say probably for that first eight, nine years after that, a lot of the joy that I reclaimed back, I wouldn't have even called it that. I think I would have called it on a spectrum of joy, more ease or more peace, was the quieting down of those voices like you and I were talking about, right? That as that criticality and as that perfectionism and as that kind of dissociation and self-neglect fell away, and I gained the ability to set boundaries and actually know what I was feeling and how to regulate myself and share what I was feeling and needing, it just improved everything. It improved my day-to-day, the peace that I felt inside. It definitely improved the quality of my relationships. I mean, I think a lot of the stressors that we have oftentimes are about our relationships and how, you know, how hard it is to be in relationship and to do it cleanly in a way and not get all tangled up into regret and rejection and resentments. So a lot of that, this model and cultivating those other roles started to clean up. And so I felt a tremendous amount of ease and peace, which is a part of joy. And then I think towards the end of the first decade, actually, of being in therapy, one of the things that I realized was I'd kind of hit that plateau in a way, you know, where I the voices had calmed down. Um, in the meantime, I'd also been able to kind of do a lot of training and get into my clinical work. And I was at a point where I was in my own private practice. So my career goals, you know, were happening pretty steadily. And I had these good friendships and relationships. And I felt more calm and peaceful inside. And at that time, I was also coming out of a difficult relationship. And there was a lot of peace in actually even having that relationship closed down. But what I realized was that so much of my time had been so preoccupied with either building up to the career or, you know, grappling with and kind of grieving and closing out this relationship. And though there was peace, there wasn't necessarily, I don't even want to use happiness. I think happiness kind of comes and goes. And I definitely was generally happy. But I think what I came to understand afterwards was like a feeling of real pleasure or joy or satisfaction in being alive. And it's a very tricky thing to talk about because on one level, as I said, things were well. And I was well internally. And yet it just felt like, um, that's the best way I can describe it is like, like a light fixture, you know, like with a dial and you're raising it up and there is light in the room, but it doesn't feel fully bright. And I think that's how it felt in terms of aliveness inside of me, that I was well, I was satisfied with my work. I was kind to myself, but I wasn't necessarily feeling relish in life. And I will also say that I realized at that point that nobody was talking about relish or aliveness necessarily, at least not in my own therapy or in my schooling. I mean, a lot of the work was about, you know, healing depression or healing anxiety. And it seemed like the work would end if you are, quote unquote, not depressed anymore, not anxious. But I don't think that the goals or the intentions were ever when you feel joyously alive or, yeah, when you can actually really experience pleasure and playfulness and even creativity and full expression in your life. So those things no one had ever talked to me about. I didn't even necessarily know them as an intention of personal transformation, but I certainly at this plateau knew that something was missing. And as I began to engage with that question for myself, and then also with long-term clients who were doing well, and I was looking at like, what else is there when we've quieted this voice? What other longings emerge? And at least for me, and then like I said, in this journey of working with people, what I've found is that thing that is about, I feel like it has a spectrum. It can go from like bliss to pleasure to play. All of it is in that realm of, do I feel fully alive? What brings me alive? What gives me joy? What would it mean 
to actually have joy be at the center of my decisions and at the center of my life and my day-to-day, these were some of the questions that started to emerge. And I will tell you, like simply engaging with joy as a question, A, brought up all the ways in which it had not been okay to actually have joy or pleasure or play or happiness as a question or as a worthwhile goal in life. And it also opened up I mean, I could be doing the same exact things in a way. I could be showing up to work and sitting with clients, which I found very satisfying. But it was just a different lens when I focused it from what would bring me joy in this interaction or what brings me alive here or what pleasure may I actually experience from this. Same from how I have my breakfast, what I do on my walks, how do I spend my leisure time, but also moving joy outside of just leisure time into my life. So that one piece of inquiry, that plateau just broke open that there was a whole other threshold of aliveness that I could experience. And that's kind of like where this journey began. And then you'd ask me about Bali. And so I think somewhere along that road, I can't remember when maybe the first couple of years of asking this question, one of the things that did bring me joy in which at that time I was really privileged to be able to do was to travel. And I think to be able to kind of, you know, experience a new place and new sights and sensations. And I will say that I'm novelty, whether it is that you just go for a different path of your like daily walk, you know, or you look at a different landscape or you open up a different podcast, like that is known to help access pleasure and joy in relationships as well as internally. And so for me, that desire to travel ended up leading me to Bali, where I did have a close friend who was married to a Balinese man. And I was able to go and stay there. And I felt very lucky and very privileged to be able to be guided on that trip by a wonderful Balinese man who was also the head of his community. And so through him, you know, like watching how his life, which was so different than the life that I was experiencing here in America, you know, where really you got up, you went to work. And like I said, you came home and maybe you had some form of leisure, generally not a creative form, generally a consumption form, TV or food, or, you know, you go out to a restaurant and then you come home, you're very tired, you go to bed, you wake up. And if there is leisure, it is relegated on the weekends, generally after a lot of housework, you know, and then you have your few weeks of vacation. Like that was at least the Western lifestyle, I think, in America, which is really common for folks who are even privileged to have that. So that's what I had been immersed in. And now I come to Bali and here is this community where I see people, you know, and of course, I do want to clarify, like he was exposing me to a certain subset. There, there are different factions in Bali. But from his experience in his community, what I saw was a life where he had his work and he was also kind of tied to and caring for his community and they for him. There were opportunities, really, it felt like woven in every day where there was connection to spirituality, where there was a making of like offerings, making of these beautiful spiritual offerings by hand from natural items found. This was done by his wife. There was practicing of music for his own pleasure and also for the kind of spiritual community which had music as a part of it. And this wasn't just him. I mean, this way of life that basically interwove creativity, art, spirituality, connection to each other and work and leisure was a part of many people's lives there. And again, obviously dependent upon socioeconomics. And of course, all of that is steeped in many cultures and traditions that are explicit to Bali in the way of lifestyle. And those are also changing now with tourism. But for me, it was just a waking up to 
a life that seemed to center more than work, more than day-to-day survival. The way that at least it, it kind of touched me was a centering of or a weaving through of beauty and pleasure and connection and an expression as a part of day-to-day life and as a part of a fully lived life. And it certainly changed the way that I thought about how I was spending my time. I think I came home and, you know, he and his community, they really inspired me to think about what do I want to do while I'm working and also when I'm not working. And that there is just so much more opportunity for creative expression, especially that I had not up until that point taken on. And at least for me, felt like a real reconnection to joy and a reconnection to joy through expression, like either through my hands or through singing or playing an instrument or dancing or just shifting the way of life. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's all about how we become aware of the most essential priorities in our lives. And a number of years ago, shortly after Pema Chodron saved my life, <laughs> mm-hmm. I started questioning very intensively and very deeply what it was that I wanted in my life. Mm-hmm. And I engaged in some practices And the first one was spending 10 minutes a day in the morning before I got up, writing down everything I want, you know, completely uncensored. Mm -hmm. And I did this for Mm -hmm. years. And what I noticed was that over time, my answers changed. Mm. And there was another practice that went along with it, which was very active. But in this one, I started questioning why I wanted the things that I thought Mm. I wanted you know, Mm -hmm. what would that get me? If I achieved this, what would that get Mm -hmm. me? What would I experience? Mm -hmm. You know, and that was a revelatory question. What would I experience Mm -hmm. if, if I achieved this, you know, what would I gain from achieving this, you know, peeling another layer of the onion. And then I would ask the same question of the next layer. And Mm -hmm. eventually I came down to joy Mm -hmm. and love. What I sought from everything Mm -hmm. that I thought I wanted was the experience of joy, that energetic, Mm -hmm. embodied, visceral, felt sense of joy. Mm -hmm. And using words to describe that kind of feels empty, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, yes, it is hard to describe because it is such a spectrum And that's why I landed on like aliveness, this real sense of aliveness. There's so much in that. I love that you did that practice. I mean, I think that's exactly it. It's a great way of saying like the same inquiry that I was in. Why do I want what I want? Why am I spending my time this way? What do I want from it? And you're so right. I mean, my hunch is that that is universal, right? People might call it happiness or I want this thing because I think that it will make me feel good. And what is feeling good but to feel alive or to feel joy, to feel connected, not to feel loved. Like I think at the base, those are our fundamental desires, really. You know, and then we have different ways of thinking that we'll get them by doing this or that. But when you come back to that base, I think it's also really interesting that when, then when you find that like how simply one can access it, you know, like when you really start to look at like what actually brings me joy and you ask that, at least for me, that's what I found is like it can actually end up being really simple. And I'm very grateful for that knowledge because I think so much of the world 
And so much of the stress that I think people feel is because the world is saying it's not enough, it's not enough, it should be more, it should be bigger. So work more and do more in order to finally feel that feeling. And then I think so much of spirituality and so much of this personal transformational work, and I think so much of what I experienced there, you know, with that wonderful guide in Bali. And when I just ask what brings me joy, how do I feel joy? How do I access it? It actually goes back to what you were describing with the children, like being present, being here, learning over time what are those simple things that I generally already luckily have that if I just take them in more deeply consistently give me joy you know and I don't know what you found but I think I also found that at least for me like it was the opposite of what society had told me like in my case it was like slowing down versus more and hurrying up that gave me more joy I was a lot happier when my days were actually less full rather than more I think when, when I had space for like simpler things, like I love to read, you know, like no one is necessarily going around endorsing like read more or, you know, spend time like relaxing, doing nothing. But I grew up in Pakistan and I think one of the benefits of growing up in a country where at least when I was growing up, the options for like entertainment and doing were a lot less. We had a much more kind of a simpler life was that I did learn, I think, on a basic level, how to feel good in my body while doing nothing, you know, while like sitting in the garden, just looking at the trees or really enjoying that cup of tea in the evening with family and like having those things be understood as real and valid and worthwhile and like a important part of life. And I think reclaiming some of my time for the doing nothing, for the being, for the simpler activities has given me back so much just joy in my existence in a way that running around and going after more was not going to provide. Not without knowing that in the end, I could feel joy in my body simply by being present right now. Yes, I totally agree. And over many years, I've radically simplified my life for that exact reason. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. To quiet things down so that I can actually have the simple space to be mm -hmm. right here and to really enjoy the simple joy of that. And when I said love and joy, the love I was talking about is, has nothing to do with romance or any of the societal notions mm -hmm. of love, but the love of, of just being open-hearted. Yes, absolutely. And of course, again, like when we are more open-hearted with ourselves, right? Like when we sort of break down those barriers, like how you began our talk, break down those barriers against loving within ourselves, I do think it softens us to the world. And I think it makes us feel better because I do believe, like all the great spiritual teachers, I think share like at our essence, we are that, just this open-hearted love. And then life comes in and hurts us. And then we begin to shut down over that. And I think just being able to reconnect with that and love freely internally and share that love more freely, more graciously, open-heartedly in the world, it does bring joy. You know, there is just a profound joy in being able to be free to touch our hearts, whether it is to feel sorrow as well. That's one thing I don't know if we shared explicitly is people often think that joyous resilience or focusing on joy means then I have to be happy all the time. And it's a kind of a covering over that kind of toxic positivity culture that we can sometimes get into. And I found you know, like going back to like Pema, that the teachings that really brought the most profound joy were the ones that allowed me to actually feel all of my feelings and permission all of them and really just simply give me the tools to feel them without being completely engulfed. 
or if I got engulfed to know that it was okay and it was part of being human and that there would be help and it would pass. So like, I think the more that we are able to swim in our own deep waters, all of them, the more alive we feel. And then ironically, the more joy we feel, you know, even if it comes from, um, I was able to fully deeply feel my grief and express it. And hence, I actually feel alive and joyous, or I was able to feel my rage, which I think is very hard for people, sometimes harder than grief, able to feel my rage and my righteous anger about things and allow that to come out and allow that to become a part of my power. And that makes me feel enormously alive and hence joyful. So it is interesting, like the path to love, it seems like it's a path that like opens all the doors to all the emotions, not just one, like I think we've been taught, like just happiness. Yes, exactly. I love the way you said that. And the only word I would add is, is the experience of heartbreak, that heartbreak, yeah. like, I think we've all experienced heartbreak that was so overwhelmingly and devastatingly painful that we never wanted to have that experience again. And yet, since then, I have come to experience something quite sublime in heartbreak. Mm. There's something mm. really quite delicious at the core of heartbreak that's like totally counterintuitive and yet it opens up like a portal or a doorway to something much deeper and much more profound and as you say by opening up to all of the feelings that we have somehow or other it opens us up to a deeper level of the positive things that we can experience as well mm-hmm Absolutely. I love that you brought up heartbreak. I think I remember like when I went through one of my most major ones, I would talk about like I felt like, you know, grief or heartbreak was like this very particular kind of knife, almost like a scalpel. And like, it seemed like it had kind of carved my insides. And I thought that it was like cutting something away, but actually it seemed like it opened up a deeper cavern in me to feel, and to your point, in the end, actually feel much more exquisite joy or much more exquisite gratitude for being alive like i think when we are pierced by such a profound emotion it does it can at least i think with the right support open us to just feel everything more deeply including just that exquisite joy of being alive then for the time that we have so i've definitely found heartbreak to be yeah one of my most unexpected but immense teachers in opening to joy Yes, and and then taking that personal experience mm-hmm. and then translating it into the way we can engage in the world and mm-hmm. do it on a collective level mm-hmm. with other people who are also experiencing that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, bringing that experience of rage and heartbreak, you know, if you have your eyes open and you have your heart open, you cannot help but experience heartbreak and rage in response to so many things that are happening in the world. And as you were saying, we need to be open to experiencing everything that arises within us in response to what we're experiencing. And I think when we bring, or when we can bring feelings and emotions like rage and also the pain of heartbreak into the way we relate to the rest of the world around us and bring it to our, I guess you could call it our nurturing and protective ways of addressing the problems of the Mm -hmm. world. I think it makes our activism 
so much more powerful and much more multidimensional, like activism that's born just out of rage and anger and suffering has a kind of a one or two dimensional quality to it. And I just wonder if you could talk about how you see, you know, what it would look like to engage in a kind of joyous activism, an activism that brings everything with it into the way we engage with the world and all the problems. And we have major, major problems that we may not be able to solve. Mm-hmm. And yet we're still here, we're still alive, and we have to deal with them. Mm-hmm. So there is the potential for despair and depression mm-hmm. and hopelessness at the same mm-hmm. time. And I'm just wondering what it might look like to bring joy and joyous resilience into our activism, even in the face of despair and rage and hopelessness when it comes up. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. And in some ways, I think it's a good recap of everything we said, because it is no different, right? That model that we're applying to our individual healing is the model that we have to apply to the parts of us that are wanting healing and are wanting to address the external situations that are causing the suffering. So I want to just kind of recap and remind like where we would begin, like even though we're calling it joyful resilience or joyful activism, if you remember the joy here is being used in terms of, again, aliveness and allowance of all of our experience. So we would begin where we are, and if that is we are enraged, then we bring that attunement and that allowance to that rage. And I would say in that attunement, really validating why there are tremendous reasons to be enraged and like what is right about that rage, you know, and like what is useful in that rage and what wants room to be validated and safe containers to be expressed. Same with if you're feeling hopeless or if you're feeling grief, it's to go under, probably with the hopelessness, the um, profound sorrow and the overwhelm, and just allowance and permission to be there, first of all, because nothing closes us down than hearing we shouldn't feel this way, right? That's been the premise all along. So allowance of that, I would also say that in individual work, I would say to somebody, when you're having these big feelings, if you can, it is really useful to have support. And on an individual basis, we might say it could be a member of family, it could be a member of your spiritual community, it could be a therapist, it could be a healer in your tradition. But it is always easiest to work through these things if we can have someone hold a container. When it comes to such big things, again, we're talking about large systemic problems that were not created by one person and certainly will not be solved by one person. I think joyful activism, activism period, would be reminding people that this is a collective issue and so requires a collective solution. And it would be really important to have a space where there is room for you to join a movement, a group of people who are working towards and invested in shifting this thing that is causing so much suffering for you so that you can actually stay engaged and hopeful and keep your momentum because you're surrounded by other bodies who are moving in the same direction. I do think it is too much to connect with all of that on our own at home, sitting, watching the news, you know, feeling completely lost under the barrage of what is occurring. So that's where in the book where we talk about like joining a movement, joining a community, tying this pain that you're feeling, this heartbreak that you're feeling, this rage that you're feeling to a place where that rage and heartbreak is being used to move momentum towards change and used while also inspiring hope. 
and also inspiring creative action, that would be a very necessary cauldron to do that kind of work in a way that was resilient. So joy and allowance of all of it, joy in actually doing it communally versus individually. And then finally, I think it's very important, I think, to look for a few different things. Look for who is doing good work in the world and it's actually succeeding. I mean, there's some news group that I follow called good news or something like that. And I love seeing their updates because every day I'm getting reminders of like what is working in the world and who are people who are actively addressing things in their communities and making change. And it just kind of shifts your vision for a moment, you know, in that overwhelm to remember that there are so many drops in this ocean and there is a purpose inside of what looks like chaos. So one is just that, it's like tying yourself to, again, collective stories of resilience. And the second is, I think, tying ourselves to and either reading stories about, talking about in community, looking for it on the media, engaging with groups who are doing activism work and who are doing healing work that incorporate sources of resilience that are fundamentally joyous. And so what I mean by that is people who cry together but also dance together, people who do rituals around activism or healing that bring in spirituality and creativity and music and actually getting out onto the earth, getting outside, like these ways of processing very large scale traumas and emotions that don't just require talk. Like part of the difficulty in kind of Western mental health is this emphasis on like, I'm going to sit across from you one-on-one and you're going to talk to me about all the things that are wrong and then somehow you're going to feel better at the end of that. When traditionally in societies, we came together in a circle and we wept and cried and then we had food and then we danced and then we played music and then we felt ourselves on the land and we had ritual and we had spirituality and we had our ancestors. I could go on. Like there's so much that was present to help hold us and heal us on that journey. So I think knowing that, reclaiming that, learning about that, joining movements and groups that center those forms of healing and activism, all of those are ways of like continuing to feel joy in our body, aliveness in our body, processing big things without them getting stuck inside of us into depression, but more as ways in which they keep moving through us and keep us hopeful and buoyant and alive. So those are some things that we could be thinking about, whether we are organizers, whether we are the leaders of the movements, or whether we are people looking to join, or whether we are healers working with clients who are suffering because of these larger societal issues that incorporate the whole body and that are beyond the individual relationship and more communal and collective. So there are two different directions I want to go in at the same time. Okay. One is I want to ask you about how you know people who are experiencing a lot of suffering and who are locked into a sense of suffering to the point that it's it's hard to imagine there being anything else. They don't see an exit from that ongoing, seemingly endless experience of suffering and problems and oppression and inequity. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of joy may seem completely unethical and mm-hmm. something that only the privileged can engage in mm-hmm. and therefore invalidate it, even for themselves. Mm-hmm. How would you address that? Yes, that's such a great, really important question. 
you know, especially like when folks are coming in and like there's been so much suffering and even if they themselves are no longer in the situation that was causing that, but maybe their families and communities are still in poverty or in a cycle of violence or suffering the day-to-day brunts of systemic oppression and there can be a profound hopelessness, helplessness, despair and guilt Right? That who am I to be accessing even this therapy? Who am I to, for certainly like to talk about joy, just seems frivolous at best, indecent, you know, given the state of the world. And I think one of the places that I would start is, I don't know if even the word joy would be the bar that we would set. I, I would again remember that we're talking about allowance and permission to be where we are and a profound validation of where we are and all the reasons why it makes sense where we are. It sounds so counterintuitive, but I think that if someone is feeling that way, oftentimes what can be tremendously relieving is not to be asked to feel any other way, but to really be validated and recognized in why it makes tremendous sense that that is so. The only difference is that as a practitioner, and I think as people who love others who are in the situation, and I think even for myself when I have been there, was to know that someone could hold space for me and deeply understand without judging me why that was so. And I think have a profound empathy understanding of why that was so for my community and my people without putting down the light, the very firm certain light of like, I am rooting for you and your aliveness and I am rooting for your community and its aliveness, even if we do not know that all of it or some of it even will be solved. But I am here and I am still rooting for that. But that begins by just meeting you where you are and validating it. And that is one step on that spectrum towards what we're calling joy slash aliveness, is that you are alive and how you are in this moment makes complete and utter sense. And if someone is across from you and they're sharing this with you, we also want to, I think, acknowledge whatever it was that brought them to you to share that, you know, there must be something in there. I often say like, whoever it is that brought you into the therapy room, whoever it is that brought you into the conversation with your pastor or with your grandparent or with your healing community, that is your inner nurture. That is the part of you that is still vying for something more. And then once we have validated where you are and why that's there, then we look for what is it that you have desire for right now? And joy may not be overtly a part of that. It might just look like a space to be able to breathe and to talk about it or a space to be able to talk about and start to be with how I feel guilty and how I feel helpless and what are we going to do there? So I want to just meet people where they are and again, look for that chink, that opening, that place where life is wanting to stay alive, but is just feeling so tremendously burdened by all that has occurred. And so we're doing this dance then you know, and we're saying you are here and we can use your life force towards aliveness for you. And I think aliveness for your community, aliveness for the ancestors who came before you, we will find a way and a purpose inside of you to stay alive and to contribute while also making space for all that you feel. That is probably where I would start there. And knowing that joy will be a part of that and can be a part of that, but may not be the starting point. Mm-hmm. And I think we also have this notion and this is where the guilt comes in. If you, who I love, was not able to get care, was not able to cry and have someone listen, then why do I get to cry and be listened to? Why do I get access to the therapy or healing? Why do I get to learn how to make my life a bit easier? Why do I get to start to set boundaries? Why do I get to even just be alive and feel safe as I walk down the street when I know that my family member is in a community where walking down the street is potentially deeply unsafe or 
now I get to have these material things that bring my life ease when I know that my family members, others are suffering and they do not have that. And I think one of the places that we conflate that is actually building the tolerance together, building that care inside the space inside to go, let us feel the grief of what is occurring with those we love or with our ancestors in our communities, like how to be able to actually feel that and be with that and possibly even take the steps that we can take towards changing that and actually separating that from like, when you get to take a breath, when you tonight get to rest your head in peace, that that is not taking something from the other and that you can actually feel your feelings about the other and actually you know, as you rise in well-being, contribute even possibly to the well-being of the other. But there is just this tendency of, because it's so hard to feel those feelings over there, the grief and the heartbreak, to then just shut ourselves down, to go, I'm not going to open up my life force, because if I do, I'm just going to feel guilty, instead of the complexity, which we learn over time with the help of the nurturer and the protector and the soul self of, I can feel happiness and joy and gratitude over here, and I can feel heartbreak and sorrow and rage over here. And I might be feeling them simultaneously, but to feel a complexity of feelings instead of shutting down one out of guilt, shutting down our aliveness or our path towards joy, because we think that it's going to take away from the connection and the love for others who are suffering instead of having that and keeping the valve open of connection. That's one of the very important tenets of really becoming resilient and staying hopeful and active in our communities, not shutting down, but staying open to both sides. Hmm. I just love that, that notion of resilience as a container that can contain anything that arises within our own experience. Yeah, simultaneously. Yeah. All these things, they're why I love this book so much. Thank you. Yeah, and to the hundreds of clients and the thousands of hours, just working on all of these things that you and I have talked about. And I think finding their own way back through these models and through these practices to being able to hold the complexity of emotions that we all are swimming in in this world. And I feel like really showing me, and hopefully it comes through in the book, that there is so much hope and that we are fundamentally so resilient. I mean, we survive so much. I think the book and the model is simply going, we do survive so much and how do we begin to thrive again? And we have that inside of us. We have that in our traditions. We have that when we come together as collectives. We have a way forward of being with all of it and still staying hopeful. I think it's like life wanting to continue forward. And I hope that it just keeps us inspired that we can. And I think that we must. I think we're at a time now where we must put our attention to these larger things and put our attention to how do we buoy ourselves up and how do we get involved beyond ourselves? Because, you know, I think the world needs all of us taking really good care of ourselves and then putting our joy and this well-being and peace of mind towards creating a world where we are deeply invested in the collective well-being and peace of mind. We are not separate from each other. And I think true spiritual transformation, personal transformation, like to your point, like when your heart breaks open like that, one of the true measures of that is that your heart breaks open for everybody then. Like if you want to break down the barriers of love, then your love extends to everybody. And then that means beyond just the notion of love, the real kind of systems of love, which say everybody needs to have access to the fundamental things that make us feel resilient on an everyday level. 
Right. And that kind of goes back to feeling safe in our communities, healthcare, education, income, dignity, respect, all of that. And we can actually create that even in the midst of despair and hopelessness when it arises because of outer circumstances looking so bleak and so hopeless at times. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. In one of the chapters, it talks about, and we know that you know, when it comes to anxiety, overwhelm, if you can calm yourself enough, if you can regulate yourself, which is a lot what the book models and teaches, there comes a point where taking action and even bite-sized pieces of action, like asking yourself, where do I have power around the situation? Sometimes and often the first power is just educating ourselves on the issue, looking for other people who are much more experienced in that particular issue that's overwhelming you and taking in all of their knowledge. Like those bits of action of education, then looking for where do I have power or privilege and I could take some action in my household, in my consumer choices, in my workplace, in who I hire, in the books that I listen to, in the organizations that I give money to, like some action that helps us start to feel less helpless and more engaged with the issue in a way that's slightly more empowering and that, you know, again, takes the lead from the people most impacted by the issue who are also doing the work around it. So those things all help us feel more galvanized. And I think, like you said, that is the power that we have and that is what is necessary right now in order to go forward. So when you have a client who comes to you and is locked in a state of suffering and despair and doesn't see a way out, where do you begin with them? What's the first step that you have found actually helps them to move forward? Probably two things. One, like I said, you know, really just hearing them out around where they're stuck. And then secondly, I think what can be really useful is going back to the model, the cycle of suffering, is actually walking someone through, like slowing down and showing them how this tangle knot that they might think that they're in, which has no way in and no way out, is actually a cycle. That it's a way that they're responding to themselves when they are feeling distress that is actually creating a lot of the distress instead of regulating and soothing it. So that's the first place I'll start. And often that will bring a lot of relief because when we are suffering, oftentimes we think this is just who I am. I just am anxious. I just have, you know, terrible relationship karma. I just unable to go forward in my job because there's something wrong with me. And I think putting all of that distress into this model and going, no, actually, You just have this feeling and then you do these things. You respond to yourselves in these critical ways or these self-neglectful ways or possibly society, going back to that, society or your family or systems have responded to you in this issue in these neglectful and critical ways that are actually creating this. And that can be profound relief. Suddenly it's not me. It's not just stuck inside of me. It's actually outside of me. I can look at it. That's also why I have the diagrams in the books that you can really just look at it out of your side of yourself and that produces some space. And inside of that space that we just created, the next thing that comes is, oh, and here are the other ways that you could learn to possibly respond to yourself that could walk you towards a whole other slew of choices and feelings and experiences. So I think At that point, having a roadmap even, even though people might feel like I have no idea how to nurture myself, I have no idea how I'm ever going to feel great about setting boundaries, 
or feel resilient and playful. It doesn't really matter at that point. What matters is that someone knows that there is a model. And as long as it makes sense to them, as long as it feels right for the client and it feels like there's something there that they can hold on to, now we're off and running. Now we have a place to move. We've come out of the story and into the possibility of a new narrative. And we can take it simply one step at a time. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I also think it is just reality, right? Everything is one step at a time. And I think when we are overwhelmed, that can actually be really reassuring, whether it is around shifting these larger issues in the world, our journey towards activism, or our healing journey. Because if we go, it really in the end is going to just be one step at a time. So what is the next, and this is the joyous part, what is the next easiest step that you can take? And most people will kind of balk at easy because we're taught like, well, it shouldn't be easy. You know, it should be hard. How do I know that I'm doing good work if it isn't hard? And that's the part of the joyous resilience is like, actually, if we're looking for the next lightest step, you're more likely to take it. And when you take it and you feel ease, then we're going to ask for the next lightest step. And it will automatically be a little bit more of a stretch than the last one. So pacing ourselves, gently walking ourselves so that we don't shut down and overwhelm, so that we actually stay consistently moving forward. So finding the right pace, knowing that it is one step at a time, and having some sense of where are we going? One step at a time, where is it that I'm headed? What is it that I most am wanting for myself when it comes to this nurturance or protection or soulful self? And really, what is it most that I want to contribute to in society in ways, even if I don't know how I'll get there? But what is my vision? for the world and a world where all of us can feel resilient. What area of that am I invested in? And then again, one step at a time, what's the next lightest step I can take towards that? And I'm going to take it. And, you know, it needs to be a bit of a stretch. It can't just be nothing because that's the piece where we're coming in and the, and the protector is there like nudging towards. Let's stretch here. Especially when it comes to, I think, like the discomfort of others. Like to your point, most of us, when we get comfortable in our own worlds, we can switch off around collective suffering. So there is a nudge. There is a commitment to staying awake and moving forward. And then in that, we're just asking, where can you see yourself moving forward? Take that next step. And then take the next step after that when you're done and so on. Stay connected and stay committed to joyful resilience individually and collectively. Wow. I've enjoyed talking with you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Tonio. Thank you for the thoughtful questions and for enjoying the book. I really feel like how much you took it in and I'm, I'm so grateful. I can't recommend this book any more highly. I and mean, this is the best book of its mm. kind that I've read so far. And I, I get to read a lot of wonderful, wonderful books it's wonderful to hear. I also want to share with your listeners that, you know, if they do feel moved to buy the book, or even if they don't, and they've enjoyed what we've talked about, I do want to share that my website is www.angelishireenmft.com. And on the website, they will find nine guided meditations that actually walk them through all of these things that we talked about. So building your inner nurture, building an inner protector, responding to yourself in a more nurturing way, learning how to access pleasure, play and creativity. And these are free. So if you've been listening and, you know, would find that useful, feel free to go to the website and you can access them directly. And certainly if you've bought the book, 
you will have a lot of content to help you make use of them even more, but they're designed to be able to use immediately, whether you've read the book or not. And may they be of use in people's journeys. My guest has been Anjali Shireen. She's an award-winning licensed marriage and family therapist specializing in somatic therapy, trauma healing, resilience building, and cultivating joy. And she's the author of this truly wonderful new book, Joyous Resilience, A Path to Individual Healing and Collective Thriving in an Inequitable World. Again, thank you so much. This has been a really, really wonderful pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much, Tonio. Oh, my God.